Good morning. Thanks for joining us online. Have you ever experienced times of urgency? Right now I'm experiencing a time of urgency to get a haircut. It's getting really long along the sides, even though you can't tell up top. Maybe you feel an urgency to get that stimulus check. You've been waiting and waiting and it still hasn't come and the bills are piling up and you're wondering when it's going to come out. Maybe you're, you thought it was a good idea during this pandemic to get a new puppy. You thought, well, we're stuck at home. It'd be a great time to train a dog. But as you're sitting there on the couch, you see the dog start to do that circling they do right before they go to the bathroom. And there's an immediate urgency to get the dog out of the house so he doesn't poop on the carpet. Maybe you've experienced the urgency during this pandemic as you've been cooking and you forgot to set a timer and all of a sudden you realize you have no idea how long your food has been cooking for. And so you rush into the kitchen hoping that you're not going to have to order takeout one more time. Maybe you are like me and you thought it would be a good idea to get an electric recliner. I thought, hey man, this is great. That way it's just you just press the button and it goes back to exactly the position you want it to be in. It stays there. Till one day your son is throwing up and you need to move very quickly. And as you press the button, you realize that the legs just move slowly and slowly down as you need to get up but can't move. See, urgency is something that we see in a lot of different areas of life. But one of the places we find it is in the Gospel of Mark. I found this meme when I was on Facebook this week, and it talks about how at Matthew and Luke and John, how they all have this introductory material leading into when they start with the story of Jesus. With Mark, it's just, let's get down to business. In fact, we named the title of this sermon series, Urgency, the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Because as you read, you'll see the stories are fast-paced. And you'll see words like immediately, as soon as, at once, without delay, story after story. There's a quick pace to the cross. And I decided not to give you a big overview today of the whole Gospel of Mark and go into everything. And we'll provide some resources via email to do that on your own time. But in this pandemic, for many of us, the slower pace has been refreshing. We don't have to rush to meetings. We can just go to our our living room or our spare bedroom. Or if you have an office or something in your house, you just walk in. You don't even need to dress more than the waist up unless you realize you're on Good Morning in America. And you decide not to wear pants and and the angle of the camera was too far down so people saw that. Don't do that. You've realized that you don't have to be late to church anymore. As our church, is, the, the, the video is posted, you can watch any time you want. So no matter what time you watch church, you're not late. There's no kids' sports or concerts. You don't have to rush the kids off to make sure they're on time. Go home real quick, get dinner before you rush off to the evening activities. Maybe you've even found you can sleep in a bit, unless you have one of those morning kids that likes to wake you up really early no matter what. And so during this pandemic, you may have found that the slow pace of life has really been one of the hidden blessings of this time. But I do think there are things in life that require urgency. Maybe we've lost our sense of urgency. Maybe we need some of it back. Because I believe there is an inherent urgency to following Jesus. There's nothing we need more right now than a daily dose 
of Jesus. And so that's why we've put together the readings through the Gospel of Mark, so you can be reading about Jesus every single day. That's why we've put out the video devotionals on our church's YouTube page, so every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday you can have a quick, short, five, six-minute video to pop in and, and remind you of who Jesus is. We need Jesus today, and we need Jesus right now. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, today's the day. Don't delay. We're going to be talking about this magnificent, amazing Savior. And don't miss out on an opportunity today to begin a relationship with Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You that we can come and open Your Word. Lord, we thank You for some of the unseen benefits of this pandemic. Slower pace. Time to rest. Time to not rush as a family. Lord, but we also know the pandemic has caused a lot of hurt out there. People with lost loved ones, people with lost jobs, people with fears and financial concerns and health concerns. So Lord, I believe that what we need right now is to look at the life of Jesus. And so thank you for this chance during these next nine weeks to look at the Gospel of Mark to be changed as we examine the creator of the universe who entered into our world, entered into our suffering to offer us eternal life. pray that you'll speak through today's message. In your name we pray. Amen. What I would like to do today is, is, is walk through the first half of chapter Mark, just to give you a feel for the pace, to, to help you understand what Mark is doing. And then we're going to look at a, two very simple words that Jesus told to his disciples. Follow me. We're going to examine what exactly does that mean. So let's begin with Mark 1. It begins with this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark starts off by just saying, hey, this is the beginning of the news. And it's the good news. It's the gospel. And he begins by saying this is the, the, the news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And he throws it right out there, right at the beginning. Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. And then he continues in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 700, go back one there, 700 years before John the Baptist came, this was written by Isaiah. It was going to come a time when there was going to be one who was going to foreshadow the Messiah and the Savior. And Mark is pointing to this 700 old year prophecy saying this is about John the Baptist. Let's go on verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was he preaching? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And what they were doing is, is they weren't going out to him just to see this prophet. They were confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. It's kind of weird. Mark just kind of throws out this random details that he ate locusts and wild honey, what what he wore. But, But he was just pointing to this prophet. In fact, 
Elijah wore very similar clothes. And so Mark is pointing out, this is the prophesied one from 700 years ago. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message was that there was one coming. And this one that was coming, that he wouldn't even be able to untie his shoes. He wasn't even worthy to to handle the the straps of his sandals. I think as Christians, for those of us that are Christians, we often lose sight of the majesty of God incarnate, of God come down. We become so familiar with the stories of Jesus that it becomes common. We lose the wonder that should exist when we think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Mark's going to continue and tell the story of the baptism of Jesus, but it's very abridged. You'll notice when you read the other Gospels, they go into much detail. And yet Mark is going to keep that quick pace It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mark here is making an appeal back to creation. In fact, in the Talmud, uh, the Jewish rabbis, when they taught about creation, they, when they described the Spirit hovering over the waters, they described that as the Spirit fluttering like a dove. And so Mark is pointing out, even just in the short description of what happened at, at Jesus' baptism, he's saying, look, all three members of the Trinity were there. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And he's pointing back to creation, that all three were present in creation in Genesis 1. We know that from Colossians that through Jesus, all things that were made had been made. John 1 calls Jesus the Word. And so we know that as God spoke, things came into being. And Jesus is the Word of God. And so we see the Word of God, Jesus active in creation. We see the Spirit hovering over the waters. We see God the Father speaking. All three are involved in the Trinity. And then at once, verse 12, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Mark doesn't give all the details that the other Gospels do. He's moving on, and he's summarizing what happened pretty succinctly. Now let's get on to where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. Verse 14, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He starts with this idea that the good news of God, the gospel is the way we say it. Gospel just simply means good news. Jesus went into Galilee preaching, proclaiming the good news. It is good news. It's the best news that's ever happened. It's better news than if a, if a uh, uh, vaccine was found for the coronavirus. It's better news than world peace. It's better news than any news you could think to have. God has come and has provided a way of salvation for the whole world. 
Jesus says the time has come. The one that John had predicted had come. John was saying, make ready the way for the Lord. This one that I can't even untie his sandals is coming. And Jesus is saying, I have now come. The one of all the prophets, all the prophets talked about in the Old Testament, all the prophecies would come to be fulfilled through me. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. (coughs) Now, people of Ari, what did Jesus mean here? Was he talking about an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? It seemed that the disciples thought Jesus was talking about an earthly kingdom. A week before the crucifixion, as Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, people waved their palm branches and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the the disciples must have thought, now is the time. Jesus is going to establish his earthly kingdom. And yet he didn't come as a king that first time. He came as a servant. Was it only referencing a heavenly kingdom then? The kingdom that is still going to come down the future. Mark Strauss had this helpful thing to say about it. He said, Jesus taught both present and future dimensions of the kingdom. The best interpretation of the data is that the kingdom has been inaugurated through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but awaits consummation, awaits fulfillment in the future. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom as both present and future, as already, but also as not yet. Here's the way I like to think about it. When Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we pray, we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come. Now how can we make God's kingdom come? We don't know the time or place when, when Christ is going to return and the rapture is going to happen and when that's all going to happen and the millennial reign is going to come. But God as king, Jesus as king, if we recognize that he is king of the universe, then as followers of Jesus Christ, it's our role to submit to our king. It's our role to surrender to him. And so as we live out His kingdom purposes, as we follow what the Bible says on how we should live, as we love others, as we, as we go out and, and serve others, we will be an example. We will be God's kingdom being lived out on this earth. And so if we truly believe that Jesus is King and we pray, Thy kingdom come, then we need to live as if He's our King. And his message was very simple. Because the kingdom of God has come near, we need to repent and believe the good news. Repent means to turn from sin. To turn from sin. Daniel Aiken put it this way. Repent means to change their minds leading to a change in behavior. Change our minds leading to a change in our behavior. It's, it's kind of thinking about it like this. If tonight I got really mad at my kids... And I yelled at him. I just full out yelled at him. And I was mean to him. And I said mean words. And after I was done, I went to him. I said, look, I'm really sorry. I should have done that. And then tomorrow night, I, I yell at my kids. And I just blast them. And then after I'm done, I say, I'm really sorry. I should have done that. And the next night, same thing. And the next night, same thing. And the next night, same thing. What that demonstrates is I haven't really repented. I may have said I'm sorry. But repenting is turning from sin. It's turning away from something. Daniel Aiken continues. He says it is both a rational decision 
and their willful act, a rational decision, recognizing something's wrong, and a willful act to turn from that sin. It involves a turn from sin and a turn to the Savior. And that's why I believe that Jesus said, repent and believe, because we need to turn away from our sin, turn away from our selfishness, and turn to Jesus. And that's where that believe happens. We're turning to something, and that is Jesus Christ. And so he says, repent and believe. Both repent and believe are what's called a present imperative. A present imperative. Now, you may say, well, I I didn't really study Greek, so I don't really know what that means. Here's in simple terms. An imperative is command. It's something we need to do. And present tense means it's something that we do right now. You have future, something you do in future. Past, something you do in the past. But a present command is something that needs to continually happen right now in the present. So to think through it this way, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a moment where we repented and believed. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you need to do that. You need to confess your sins to God and give your life to Him. And the moment you do that, you experience, you have the Holy Spirit, you're sealed for, the, for eternity, that God has a relationship with you, He's adopted as you, you as a son or daughter. But from that moment on, you still need to repent and believe. It's a continual process that we're all called to do. It's this ongoing action. In Romans 10.9, this verse that helps us know how to become followers of Jesus, it says, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth what? That Jesus is Lord. That he is King. That you need to surrender to him. That means it's not good enough to just go to church. Going to church doesn't mean you have a relationship with the creator of the universe. It means you have an activity to do on Sunday. It doesn't mean that you, well, I went to catechism and I, and I had my, my first communion and, and I had all these different things. No, that doesn't signify that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean, well, look, I believe the right things. I, I've intellectually assented to these different beliefs about God. No. Confessing Jesus as Lord means that you recognize that He is King. And because He is King, that means that every area of your life needs to be surrendered to Jesus. So we need to radically change our life if we truly believe that His kingdom has come and that He is King and that He is Lord, which means it should impact how you spend your time. Yes, that should be a consideration. If Jesus is Lord, it should impact how you spend your time. should impact how you spend your money, what career you choose to pursue, how you treat others, how you love your family, how you respond to those who hurt you, who mistreat you. Having Jesus as Lord of your life should impact how you respond to those that are mean. It should impact how you speak. It should even impact what you post on social media. The things that you post on social media, are you posting them out of love? Are you posting them out of care for your neighbor? Are you thinking through Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is 
worthy, think about those things. We are saying something to an outside world by how we communicate on Facebook. If we have vitriol towards others and hate, is that communicating something that shows Christ is your King? Everything about you should communicate that Christ is your King. Because if the kingdom is coming near and He's asking you to repent and believe, that process is a daily process. Jesus said in another place to daily take up our cross and follow Him. If Jesus is Lord, then we need to surrender everything in our life to Him. And you may say, that's, that's too much of a cost. I'm, it's okay for me to give him Sundays. It's okay for me to give him this and give him that. But you see, and you'll find it all throughout Mark, and you'll find it all throughout Matthew, Luke, and John, the other Gospels as well, that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it, it means giving up everything. He said to the rich young ruler, okay, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Because he knew that riches was an idol of that rich young ruler. He had some other guys come to follow him. And he said, look, where I'm going, I don't even have a home to go to. I'm a traveling rabbi. I depend on the hospitality of others. And they weren't willing to go and follow him if that was the case. And so when we think about what does it mean to know that God's kingdom is near, that we need to repent and believe, I believe one of the ways we can do that is look at the response of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And today, I want to look at four simple fishermen and one tax collector. Let's continue the story in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Once At once... They left their nets and followed him. We know from John 1, 35 to 49 that Jesus had already met these brothers. They already knew who he was as well as James and John. But he says this, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Now there is a mention in the Old Testament of God fishing for people. And some commentators have said, is this what Jesus is referencing? But I I don't think that's the case. I think these are simple fishermen. And so Jesus is using a simple analogy. (coughs) He's using something they were well aware of. Their occupation was to fish. He's given them a new purpose. I want you to fish for people. And that's what we're called to do. And it says, at once they left their nets and followed him. Now notice, there's, there's no two-week notice. There's no discussion of, okay, what are the health benefits? Is there a 401k involved here? What's the pay like? You know, there's no job security. They had to leave everything. They had to leave their careers to follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been looking for a job, but sometimes when you read descriptions of jobs, you wonder, okay, this seems really vague. What am I really going to do here? Remember when I was looking for a uh, job as a lead pastor, some descriptions were so vague that you're like, I wonder what they're really looking for. And other descriptions were so specific that only Jesus himself could fulfill the position. But he didn't give them any description. It was like this blank contract. Sign at the bottom and I'll, know, I'll let you know what it means once we start. They had to leave their family, leave their security, leave their dreams. 
And it says that at once they left. This was a very uncommon approach that Jesus had. In those days, rabbis would accept apprentices, and but the apprentice, the, the, the students would approach them and ask them if they could be their follower. They could be their disciple. And a rabbi certainly would never say to his disciple, come follow me. The rabbi would say, I'm going to teach you the law. I'm going to teach you how to follow God. And so Jesus was expressing his divinity when he chose them and said, follow me, not follow the law, follow me. In verse 19, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, we don't know what Zebedee's relationship was, if he had heard Jesus teach, if he was really upset that they did this. But they left everything. They just threw the nets down. They said bye to their dad, and they went and followed Jesus. This is this idea of repent and believe, of immediately turning from the direction they had been on and choosing to surrender their life to Jesus and follow him. Now let's skip ahead into chapter 2 with the story of, of Levi. Once again, Jesus went out to beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Levi is a Jewish name. It, it comes from the lineage of priests, and he's later named Matthew. Now, I want to give you a little context of tax collectors in case you've never studied this. When Rome took over a province or a colony or a city, they would send people into the city to assess what the tax value was of the area. And they would ask people that lived there to bid for the chance to be a tax collector. So what Levi would have done is he would have offered the government of Rome a lot of money, a large sum of money, to try and earn the right to be the tax collector. That's one of the reasons why they were considered traitors. They were hated. Now, if you want to imagine a scenario, imagine if a foreign country came into America and took over America. Now did they take over America, they took it over by force. And you probably knew family members, friends who had been killed by this occupying force, those that had been raped or had their, their possessions stolen. And you, as a Jew, would have hated the Roman government. And yet, this Jewish person bid for the right to work for them. Now, what would happen is this tax collector would collect Roman taxes. They would add surcharges to cover their expenses. But then they would also take a little extra for profit. So the Roman taxes were quite burdensome. Now, you add on to that the surcharges to cover the tax collector's time and then a little extra for profit and they would have been living lavishly had the best houses the best clothes the best food while their fellow jews suffered there were direct taxes that were paid for by everyone that lived in the roman territory there were land taxes on the harvest there were income taxes there were also indirect taxes kind of like sales tax when, uh, you know, for someone who was docking at a pier or for importing or exporting goods or for traveling on the Roman roads, or even if you had a cart, you could have to pay a tax on each 
wheel that you had on your cart. And so the tax collectors were hated. How, how badly were they hated? They couldn't testify in court because they were considered untrustworthy. The Talmud called them robbers. So Jews that were tax collectors were often excommunicated. They weren't allowed to worship. They weren't welcomed in synagogues and their money wasn't accepted. When the church doesn't accept your money, not good. Some rabbis during the day of Christ taught that if a tax collector set foot in your house, immediately everybody that lived there was considered unclean and you have to go through ceremonial cleansing to be able to go back into the synagogue or to go to the temple. If you feel like you're too bad or too dirty or you feel like you're too far from God, you feel like God couldn't love you, just remember that one of the disciples that Jesus called to be in his inner circle would have been one of the most hated and and one of the people that everybody considered the most immoral people in society. And yet Jesus said, I choose you. I'm going to start a new movement, and I choose you. Levi, through you. In fact, you're going to write one of the four Gospels that will be used forever to tell my story. So what did Jesus say to Levi? He simply said, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, we don't think about the significance of this act of Levi. He would have been very rich, had the best clothes, the best food, the best house, and yet he left all of it to follow Jesus. So while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him as disciples. Who would be Levi's friends? Well, Levi was in the category of sinners. He was a tax collector. So when he invited all of his friends, it was other tax collectors, other sinners, other immoral people that the, the religious folk in Jesus' time would have said, don't go anywhere near them. And while they're, go back one, sorry. While they're eating with disciples, for there are many who followed him. So some of those people followed Jesus. Next one. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples. Notice they don't go to Jesus. But they asked his disciples and says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How could a traveling rabbi do this? We've seen him do all these miracles and all these other things, but how could he eat with this tax collector? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not called to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Now, if you recognize something, the the scriptures say there's no one righteous, not even one. So Jesus came for all, but he knew the Pharisees and the Sadducees wouldn't see it. They thought they were so righteous and, and so good that they didn't need a Savior. They didn't need someone to save them. So Jesus came for the sinners. Now, if we fast forward to Mark 3, we see Jesus called 12 people. Now, if you look at that list, we don't know the occupation of all of them. We think probably seven of the 12 were were fishermen. But I want to point out two names to you. One is Matthew, which is Levi, who we just talked about, who was a tax collector. And then we have this guy down here, Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots hated Roman rule. 
And in fact, they were kind of like terrorists. They would go and attack the Romans. They were trying to find ways to overthrow the Romans. And so you have a Roman hater and a person that worked for Rome as the people that Jesus chose to be his 12 disciples. But he called them all with one simple command. Follow me. Daniel Aiken said there's no prerequisite to following him. This is a grace call. He does not tell them to improve their moral character and their social acceptability. Jesus finds them where they are, and he simply calls, in effect, come. Come as you are, but come. You must come right now. They are to follow immediately and in faith. This is a radical call for those fishermen, to be sure, and it is no less radical today. So we go back to that verse. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe. Give your life. Turn toward God. Give your life to God. We need to give God, you need to give God your sin your finances, your career, your dreams, your time, your purpose, your very life. In fact, if you take out Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and insert Matthias, who took his place, 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. They were killed because they followed Jesus. Now, for most of us in the context here in America that are listening Following Jesus doesn't mean we have to risk our very lives. It doesn't mean that we have to to risk our careers. It often doesn't mean that we need to risk anything, honestly. And yet, Jesus has called us to surrender our lives. And so often, we're so unwilling to even do the minimal things. But if Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is King... And if he is our king and we surrendered our allegiance to him and said that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that means that we need to surrender every single aspect of our life to our king. He is deserving. We are unfit to untie the sandals on his feet. The God of the universe who created everything came down to this earth as a servant to suffer and die, to provide us a way to spend eternity in heaven with Him. And the Scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? It means He's King. His kingdom has come near, and He's calling us to repent and believe. The fishermen left their careers. The tax collector left his career, what are you willing to leave behind? Are you willing to give everything for your king? It's a simple call. Follow me. But it means something much more significant. Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord and King? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so easy to have so many distractions. There's so many things that pull at our time. So many things that pull us in all directions. So many areas of our life that 
we consider our own and we selfishly hold on to, maybe even areas of sin, things that we're doing that we're unwilling to give up because we like it too much and we don't want to surrender that part of our life to you. You came to proclaim the good news that we can have eternal life through you. But the kingdom of God has come near. Lord, if we've recognized you as king, help us to live like that is true. Help us to live with your kingdom in mind, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words, in our posts, in our in our interactions with our kids and our spouses and our friends and our bosses and our co-workers. Lord, reign in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for, for joining us for our worship service. In a moment, we're just going to have a reflection question that you can ask yourself and think about that will be posted on the screen. But I just want to encourage you to have a great week. And remember, Jesus is King, and that's a good thing. It's good news that the King of the universe came to this earth to die on your behalf so that you could have life. Let's live in astonishment and rejoicing with that good news. Have a great week.